They came, like a dark storm cloud out of the east, disrupting each land between China and Rome, laying waste to whole towns, villages, and cities, then disappearing just as quickly as they'd come. Early Christians called them the Scourge of God, while Roman sources described them as, quote, so ugly that it was repulsive to look upon them for prolonged periods of time. Another Roman account from this period notes how they were skilled on horseback, so much so that it was difficult to tell where the men ended and the beasts began. With invaders as horrifying as these, they surely must have been an evil force, sent by the devil himself to wreak havoc upon the world. But they weren't. They were, in fact, a confederation of semi-nomadic tribes from the Eurasian steppe, united under a single banner, and led by a man who has since become known to history as Attila. I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and today we'll be taking a look at the life and times of the man, the myth, and the legend of Attila the Hun, right here on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. Today, Central Europe is comprised of several countries. Located in almost the dead center of this region is Hungary, a country with quite a lengthy and rich history. The nation's current inhabitants, who go by the demonym of Hungarians, are decidedly newer to the area than the other European peoples and powers that surround them. For starters, they speak a Uralic language, a remnant of their original homeland in the Ural Mountains, one of the two mountain ranges that form a natural boundary between Europe and Asia, the other being the Caucasus. Yet neither the name Hungary nor Hungarians are what the current people refer to themselves as. The title they bestow upon themselves is Magyar, after the Magyars, the ancient semi-nomadic people who left the Ural Mountain region for reasons that are unclear sometime in the 7th or 8th centuries AD, and ultimately settled in the land now called Hungary. But Hungary is a name that predates the arrival of the Magyars, for, as you might have guessed, there were people already residing there by the time these later nomads arrived. These original inhabitants have gone by many names throughout antiquity. The Chinese, for example, refer to them as the Xiongnu, and it's this name that has reached us here in the West in the form of a vague translation, Huns. That's right, the country we now know as Hungary was once the homeland of the Huns. But where exactly did the Huns come from? Genealogists and historians nowadays agree that the Huns were a loose confederation of nomadic tribes from across the Eurasian steppe, namely of Iranian, Turkic, and especially Mongolic stock. Though each of these groups were likely independent at some point, they all banded together to form a single empire that has since become known as the Hunnic Empire, that at its height stretched from Central Asia to Western Europe. The people that the Chinese referred to as the Xiongnu were largely of Mongolic lineage, the ancestors of the later Mongols who would one day go on to conquer much of the known world into a massive, contiguous land empire in the 13th century. However, by the time they'd made their way to Rome's doorstep, these quote-unquote original Huns had incorporated several other nomadic groups into their fold, most notably the Alans of Iranian descent, the Germanic Ostrogoths of Central Europe, and even Turkic Bulgars from the Caspian Sea region. Through this time, they were led by many great and powerful leaders, but the figure whom many considered to be the greatest of Hunnic leaders wouldn't burst onto the historical record until the 5th century AD. The man known as Attila the Hun was born in around 406. To this day, scholars debate the etymology of his name, citing both Germanic and Turkic origins. One camp claims that his name is derived from the Gothic word for father, Atta, and the Gothic suffix Ila, meaning little, so something along the lines of little father. Still others claim that the Turkic S, meaning great, and Dil, ocean or sea, were combined to create something like, quote, the universal ruler who is like the sea. In any case, it's believed that Attila's title was not derived from what many believe to be his native Mongolic heritage, and personally, both the Germanic and Turkic roots of his name seem plausible. Regardless, he was the nephew of his predecessor, Rugila, and he'd ultimately rule alongside his brother, Bleda. But as with most egotistical and self-centered monarchs, Attila wasn't satisfied with sharing the throne. 
From the start, tensions arose between the two. These reached a fever pitch, however, following a skirmish with the Romans in 445. According to tradition, Bleda was killed at the hands of Attila, though some sources, perhaps to officially justify Attila's actions, claim that Bleda had attempted to kill him first. Whatever the exact circumstances, just one decade after both had ascended, Attila seized the Hunnic throne for himself. Thus began his reign of terror. The Huns had been united during Rugila's reign. Prior to this, there had been several disparate warring factions of Huns duking it out across the Eurasian steppe. Of course, by the time Attila took the throne for himself, they were all under a single banner, and were, therefore, easier to rule. With Bleda out of the picture and no usurpers in sight, Attila set off on a campaign of conquest by heading south towards the Eastern Roman Empire, also known as the Byzantine Empire. On the way, particularly in the region known as Moesia, the Huns were met by the Roman army, the latter of whom was under the control of Arnegisclus, a Romanized Goth who served at the time as Magister Militum, a title that referred to the senior military officer for the entire empire. Although the Romans were ultimately defeated in what's become known as the Battle of Utus, after the river, now the Vit in Bulgaria where it was fought, Arnegisclus was able to inflict heavy losses for the Huns. Still, Attila was not to be deterred, and with no other opposition standing in his way, he and his forces laid waste to the Balkans, going as far south, ironically, as Thermopylae in Greece, which you'll remember had been the site of yet another famous battle with the Persians in antiquity. From there, the Huns proceeded towards Constantinople, the Byzantine capital itself. There, however, they were met with heavy resistance by yet another Magister Militum, a man named Flavius Zeno. With the aid of the city prefect, Constantius, the Byzantines were able to defend and protect the city, even going as far as to rebuild and patch up holes in the old defensive walls that had previously been damaged due to earthquakes. Of their victory, a Byzantine historian named Callinicus later recalled how, quote, The barbarian nation of the Huns became so great that more than a hundred cities were captured, and Constantinople almost came into danger. It had certainly been a close call for the capital. For the time being, anyway, it seemed as if a major crisis had been averted. For a time, Attila and the Huns returned to their homeland in present-day Hungary to rest and regroup. But a few years after the Constantinople debacle, in 450, the Hunnic leader made public his intent to attack and conquer the Visigoth kingdom of Toulouse in what's now France. To do this, he made an alliance with the then-emperor of the Western Roman Empire, Valentinian III. By this time, the Huns were surprisingly on good terms with Rome, as they'd helped the Western Romans in military campaigns against the Goths, and various rebellious factions outside and within the empire's borders respectively. Attila's skill and bravery against these groups had given him the honorary title of Magister Militum in the western half of the empire. So it was that he set about meddling in the quote-unquote barbarians' affairs. For starters, Attila interfered with the succession struggle following the death of a Frankish king. Said king had had two sons, both of whom were now vying for his throne. Attila backed the elder of the pair and gathered up his vassals in support. Thus began an epic march west all the way to Belgica, present-day Belgium, with a force that some historians of the time claimed was, quote, a million strong, though this was likely an exaggeration. By April 7th, 451, Attila and his men had made it to what's now northern France, sacking and taking the towns of Metz and Strasbourg in the process. He likely would have taken others as well had their leaders and religious men not intervened, begging the advancing army to spare them. Throughout this campaign, a Western Roman named Aetius, who was in fact the official Magister Militum for the western half of the empire, unhappy that Rome was resorting to quote-unquote barbarian help by employing the Huns to intervene in other barbarian affairs for their own personal interests, set his own machinations in motion. Gathering up an army, largely comprised of Germanic mercenaries, Aetius rushed to meet the Huns in France. Along the way, the Romans garnered the support of Visigoth King Theodoric I, offering up his own troops in the process. 
There on the plains of what's now the Marne Department of France, the Huns and Romans duked it out, the resulting victory of which went in favor of Aetius and his combined Roman Visigoth force. Theodoric ultimately died in the skirmish, and the Huns retreated altogether. The Romans had won the day, and what's more, they'd halted Attila's westward advance. But much like certain sexually transmitted diseases, if you'll pardon the analogy, the Huns kept coming back for more. The following year, in 452, Attila set his sights on Italy. His reason for doing so had been a misunderstanding between himself and the Roman Emperor Valentinian III, whose sister, Honoria, had sent the Hunnic leader a plea for help, as well as a wedding ring, to help her break off an unwanted forced engagement with a Roman senator. Interpreting the ring as a proposal, Attila was returning to Italy to, quote, claim what was rightfully his, meaning Honoria, as well as a sizable chunk of the Western Roman Empire's territory. He completely ravaged the northern part of the country, and, in an interesting turn of fate, the refugees of which would go on to establish communities in in and around the lagoon of what's now Venice. That's right, the city of Venice can thank Attila and the Huns for its humble origins all the way back in the 5th century. So vicious were the Hunnic attacks that some cities, including Aquileia, were completely destroyed, so much so that it was difficult to find where exactly the city or its foundations had been located in the first place. Still battle-weary from their conflict with the Huns, Aetius and his forces weren't able to meet them head-on this time around. Instead, the Magister Militum sent a mere shadow force in its place, though this wouldn't be enough to halt the Hunnic storm. That wouldn't happen until Attila had reached the Po River and would be of his own accord. It's unclear what exactly brought this ravaging army to its knees, though most historians agree that it was likely a combination of disease and starvation that had been the culprit. Upon receiving word of this, Emperor Valentinian III dispatched three envoys to the Huns' position in the Po River Valley to negotiate a peace treaty. As that part of the country had suffered a devastating famine the year prior, and seeing as how his armies were in no position to continue, Attila reluctantly accepted and returned to his palace on the Danube in present-day Hungary. Throughout this time, the Byzantine Empire in the east had gained a new emperor, Marcion, who refused to pay tribute to the Huns. His predecessor, Theodosius II, had more or less been forced to, following some conflicts with them when they'd been jointly ruled by both Attila and his brother Bleda. When Attila heard news of Marcion's succession and his refusal to pay tribute, he was furious and vowed to march on Constantinople once more. This time, however, he wouldn't make it. For in the early days of 453, during the festivities surrounding his latest marriage to a beautiful Germanic princess, he died. Accounts from this period report that he'd suffered a severe nosebleed and choked to death on the blood. Modern medical experts believe that this was caused by ruptured veins in the esophagus that ultimately led to hemorrhage, and either way, it doesn't exactly paint a pretty picture. With Attila gone, and with several sons now vying for succession to the throne, the Hunnic Empire slowly but surely disintegrated, as conflict after conflict surrounding ascension rocked the sovereignty to its core. As each of these potential claimants were picked off in battle, the Hunnic homeland and present-day Hungary slowly became overrun by Germanic and Slavic tribes. With that, the Huns who remained scattered in different directions, some returning to Central Asia, and others being incorporated into these ever-expanding Germanic and Slavic kingdoms. To this day, Attila is considered the absolute height of Hunnic rule, as well as the greatest Hunnic leader who ever lived. But what of his reputation and legacy? Here in the West, he's often seen as a tyrannical figure, a bloodthirsty conqueror whose only ambition was to seize as much land as possible and reap the spoils. Such ideas spring from Greek and Roman sources of the time, who were naturally afraid of him and the threat he posed to their sovereignty. 
It might surprise you to learn, then, that he isn't viewed as such in certain parts of Europe and beyond. In Hungary, for example, after the Magyars moved in in the 8th and 9th centuries, the name Attila carried with it a certain level of prestige and respect, and he's still revered as a national hero to Hungarians to this day. Even later Norse sources portray him as a semi-legendary king. Such texts as the Icelandic Volsunga saga elevate him to the ranks of a central character, a fearsome warrior who, despite his fearsome reputation, commands respect. Even today's Mongolians see in him a kindred spirit, right up there with other national heroes like Genghis and Kublai Khan. Hero or villain, friend or enemy, it's unanimously agreed that Attila the Hun's reputation is forever cemented in the annals of history. He certainly achieved a great many things in his life, things that he likely knew would grant him a certain sense of immortality, as we continue to discuss him right up to the present moment. Whether feared or revered, the impression he made on history is clear, with a legacy that will continue to endure so long as humanity studies its past. Thank you for listening, and a very happy first day of February to you. January seemed to crawl by, didn't it? I must confess that I didn't mind, though. The years tend to fly by at breakneck speed these days, so a slow and steady month is like a breath of fresh air. Let's pray the rest of the year goes at a similar pace so that we can enjoy things more. That being said, I hope you have a terrific weekend ahead, and be sure to tune in again next week for a fascinating look at the history behind a surprising cultural and linguistic community in Finland, right here on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off for now. See you next time.